So today I want to start a new uh, sermon series called Reframe. And over the next several weeks, I want to talk about changing perspectives. You know, part of the art of living well is to look at things from different perspectives. Many times we get locked in, we kind of look through a peephole, and we refuse to see the bigger picture. But sometimes that bigger picture will help us to see how other people see life. We often tell other people not to think a certain way or feel a certain way, but we offer little perspective on why they should do so. And sometimes the advice that we can give can be counterproductive unless we help each other be able to reframe how we look at life. And so over the next several weeks, I want to take a look at things that we believe about life, about God, about issues of faith, and let's see if we can reframe certain things that will help us to better understand life in general and our own lives as well. Now, this reframing technique is something that we all use. Now, tomorrow, weather permitting, uh, will be the last Monday of a golf league that I've golfed in over the whole summer. And when you get onto the first hole that you've played each Monday night, you have to kind of reframe how you're going to putt toward the hole. So sometimes the greens are very fast, so you just very gently hit the ball, or sometimes they're very slow, and I mean, you really got to give it a kick. And so with all this rain tomorrow, it'll probably be slow. So I am always reframing how hard to hit the ball. Does that make sense? From hole to hole to hole, you're constantly reframing how hard to hit the ball. So how many of you have tried to hang a picture on the wall and you think it's level. Only when you step back, you go, man, this is kind of tilted. So there's this little device called a level. And so when you hang a picture, one of the things that you do is you can kind of put this up here. And as you adjust the frame on the wall, you're constantly reframing the position on the wall by putting that little dot in the middle there, okay? So there's a lot of simplified things about how we reframe things that we do in everyday life. So another interest of mine is photography. And so when people take a picture, uh, usually one of the things that they do is they see what they want to take a picture of, and they always put the subject where? Right smack in the middle, which is the most boring place to put a person in the middle of a photograph. So a good photographer and a professional photographer will not use their phone to take pictures. They'll use a camera that always has a lens, right? And that lens is a frame that they look through. And as they move that frame around, they can see the best composition and the most interesting composition of what they're trying to take a picture of. So there, I gave you three illustrations of the technique of reframing that we use in everyday life. But sometimes it is a game changer. So I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a guy by the name of Fosbury. So he was a high jumper, uh, Dick Fosbury, 
was a high jumper in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. And he was an individual that reframed the art of high jumping. One of the things that he did is he didn't try to leap over the bar by straddling it. He didn't try to leap over it like a dog would jump over a chair. He went over backwards and it changed the whole game. I want you to watch this video for a second here. It's quite interesting how the whole art changed because of the way he did it. That's just Fosbury, uh, you know, just pay no attention to him because he's, he's just unique and an oddball.
quite a story, isn't it? The Fosbury flop. Because he had a way of reframing a sport that no one else saw. And so today, what we want to do is talk about the art of reframing. And I got three quick points that I want to make this morning. Number one, it's a part of life. Number two, it's a part of the Bible. And number three, it's a part of wisdom, okay? So I have already given you some examples of the fact that it is a part of life. I've showed you through a level. I've mimicked a lens of a camera. You know, when you think about your journey through life, my journey through life, we do not stay the same. We are constantly changing. And because we are constantly changing through the seasons of life, we are always reframing our perspectives many times over. And usually it starts out with simplicity, and then it moves to complexity, and then it moves to perplexity because there's some things that we can't figure out. And then we somehow come to some harmony with the fact that we have a new way of looking at something and it's okay that we don't understand all of it. Uh, and we have this kind of inward, okay, I'm fine with that. I'm good with that. And then all of a sudden we start all over again because maybe we have another experience or maybe we go through a hardship or maybe there's some challenges that force us to go through the reframing process all over again. You know, faith is following the path of reframing. So what you do as you go through the seasons of your life and as you age and as you get older and as you reframe what your needs are in life as you get older, your faith is the same way. It takes the same journey. We take our faith into tomorrow a place that we cannot see. That's why it's called faith, right? Because we're moving into a part of life that we don't know what's next. And faith is not about repeating things that we are certain about. Faith is about a journey. And as we move forward, it involves not only reframing, sometimes it involves transposing and reimagining something, just like we saw Dick Fosbury did with the art of the high jump. Now, a moment ago, we read the Apostles' Creed. And we have done that a number of times on Sunday mornings because it's a nice summarization of a lot of the teachings of the church that have come down through the centuries. However, even though it is named as the Apostles' Creed, it wasn't written during the days of the Apostles. It was written in the 3rd and 4th century, which is a, a number of years later, decades later. Why? Why did they feel the need to come up with this creed that is used within worship settings and stuff? Well, to understand that, you have to understand what they were going through during that period of time. As they faced certain teachings by certain people that they hadn't heard before, and that they were a bit afraid of, they felt they needed to crystallize and summarize their faith as a way of knowing what they believed. And so they had councils, which is a lot like a conference or a large meeting where they debate certain issues of faith and certain beliefs, and then 
after all of that, they would uh, determine what they wanted their faith to look like in their day and in their age. And it worked great for them. Here's what happens, though. It's easy to try to set that in stone then. And what I mean by that is they made these creeds born out of intense debate and the need to know what they believed at a point in time that all of a sudden turned into who is in and who is out. That's the danger, is sometimes you begin to believe something and you feel you're the only one that is right about it, and certain people agree with you, and collectively that becomes a denomination or something like that, and we're right and other people are out, and so determining who's in and who's out is the wrong use of the creed because it wasn't meant necessarily to look the same forever and always, right? Because their need in the moment determined uh, what they needed to summarize, but life changes. Our understanding of life changes. These uh, basic beliefs, I think, are pretty transcultural, uh, but at the same time, we have to understand that these, our spiritual ancestors, um, were giving to us their understanding of God in their time and in their setting and in their context. So the creeds are an expression of trust at their point in time, right? It was never meant to be a test of faith that if you don't agree with all these little points, then you're out. And yet, that's the tendency of human beings, right? Right? So if you don't believe the same thing I do, well, then there's something wrong with you because you know I've got it all figured out, right? No, we're all in the process of reframing life as we go through it. And the creeds are this expression at a point in time of how people saw their life and how they saw God. But I bet if you took a number of church leaders from different denominations and you sat them down in a convention center today, and you told them to work out a new creedal statement of what they believed, it would look much different than the Apostles' Creed because of the circumstances and changes over a course of time. But what happens many times is people want to cement their belief system at a particular point in time when it doesn't work any longer. Let me give you an example. So about 21 years ago, um, there was a book that was written by a pastor here in the United States called The Purpose Driven Life. Does anybody remember that book? Okay. It was out and became a New York Times bestseller. And there were church campaigns that were governed around the 40 days of purpose and all that type of thing. And that book came out in October of 2002, I mean, yeah, 2002, and was translated into 12 languages and was sold around the world. And it had five basic points. It says, you were created for God's pleasure, number one. Second purpose, you were framed for God's family, number two. Number three, you were created to become like Christ. And number four, you were shaped for serving God. And number five, you were made for a mission. 
And at the time, people loved this book because it tended to simplify for them what faith was all about. What is our purpose in life? Well, here, here's five big points, okay? And then something happened. What happened uh, was in September of 2001, so a little bit before this book was published, September 11th happened. So today, being September 11th, it is the 21st anniversary of that momentous event that happened at the World Trade Center. And part of the success, I think, of that book was born out of the need of who am I as a Christian because here were these Muslim terrorists that attacked us, okay? And as they attacked us, it unfortunately led to a couple of wars as well, the Iraqi war and the Afghanistan war that lasted until not too long ago, 20 years. And it seems to me that book was at the right point of time to try to define uh, what it means to be a Christian. Does that make sense? In, when, in light of the fact that there was this worldwide jihadist movement that wanted to attack the United States. Well, what happened? Instead of taking the insight and reframing, uh, what happened was it became dogmatic. And all of a sudden, uh, anyone that looked Middle Eastern would be persecuted uh, by white nationalists or other people uh, that looked different than they did. And all of a sudden, this simplicity gave rise to complexity and more importantly to perplexity, why would, we, why would we persecute every Muslim in the whole world? They're not all terrorists, but yet that was kind of the mentality that developed. And, and so what happened was there was a way of reframing that then became dangerous. Does that make sense? Okay. So now here we are 20 years later and we need to reframe that again. Because there are lovely, lovely individuals that are Muslim. You work with some. You live next to some of them. Uh, you are friends with people of different faiths and stuff like that. And so we can't keep operating as maybe we were sucked into back in 2001. Does that make sense? We've got to reframe. We've got to look at life differently. So there is a need to constantly and consistently move forward. Uh, the philosopher Heraclitus once said, you cannot step into the same river twice. In other words, a, it's no longer a river if the water's not moving. It's a lake, right? So you can never step into the same river twice because it's constantly moving. And so here we are 20 years later, and technology has made life, yes, more comfortable for us, but more complex for us as well. Because now you have social media like Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and other things like that that is shaping us by what is being uh, posted and so forth. And yet, we've got to get beyond that as well. Henry Ford reframed transportation. Think about that for a moment. Henry Ford uh, famously said that if he had given people what they wanted in the moment, he would have produced, it, produced faster horses. But think about it. He had an ability to see transportation mechanically. And so a car was developed. And here we are now 
all these years later and you see a Tesla on the road and you go, oh my gosh, an electric vehicle that can go from zero to 60 miles per hour in three seconds. Can you imagine what Henry Ford, if he was living, saw that? He'd go, oh my gosh, I never envisioned that. So people have constantly reframed over the course of their life and that will never, ever change. That's a part of life. So we need to accept the fact that life is constantly being reframed. So by reframing our situation, we periodically overhaul our lives so that we can be in sync within the times that we are living. Is it difficult to reframe? Yes. We are creatures of habit. We don't like change. But it's coming and we need to adapt. Number two, all you have to do is look at the Bible, and you will see that people were reframing all along in the Bible. So, so think of it for a moment like this. Many times when people see the Bible as an instruction manual or an ownership manual for living, and they want to find out what makes a good marriage, but the fact of the matter is most of the Bible there's not this marriage between a man and a woman singularly. There's polygamy all through the Bible, right? It wasn't even on the radar that same gender individuals who love each other deeply would want to get married and, and live their life together. It's not even in here, okay? So what we find is there's a constant reframing going on. And yet at the same time, we probably have been taught, if we've been a Christian or have been in church for any length of time, that to be a good Christian, you have to believe the right things. To avoid going to hell, you need to believe the right things. You must believe uh, very certainly about certain things. You have to have a strong faith by believing these things. Um, and you know what those things are? It happens to be a particular interpretation of a particular individual. So a person comes along and says, you need to believe A, B, C, and D, and E. Well, they're not giving you this. They are giving you their interpretation of this. And there's a big difference, okay? Now, in the Bible, you have the Old Testament law. All the Torah the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, give the law that framed the life of the nation of Israel. And then they need to adjust along the way. Later prophets will say, God doesn't desire sacrifices. Well, go tell that to the writer of Leviticus because there's, it's full of sacrifices. And then Jesus comes along. And in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He was reframing the law, that it wasn't enough to keep these outward commandments. It's not enough me not to murder somebody. I need to keep a check on my attitude as well my attitude of hate and anger and other things that produce those actions. So Jesus reframes the law of the Old Testament. We just read Hebrews chapter 6 a couple of moments ago, and it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews is reframing for his readers 
what faith looks like. Now, he's doing something that others had done before him. In fact, you remember when we began our service, I talked about the monarchy being the central core of the Old Testament, but it's not presented in the same way. If you read First and Second Kings, it presents the monarchy in one way, and then you read First and Second Chronicles because there's no longer a king on the throne because they had gone into exile. They reframe the idea of a monarchy completely different, and those books are right next to each other in the Old Testament even though they weren't written at the same time. So here's the point. The writer of Hebrews is doing what he had seen happen in the Old Testament. And here's what he does. He reframes for his audience what faith looks like for them in their day and age. So we might par uh, um, uh, summarize and paraphrase uh, that passage that I read earlier this way. Move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. Start moving on. Become more mature by not continually focusing on repentance from your sins and by not going on and on about faith in God and by not getting distracted by religious rituals and, not, and by not becoming obsessed with laying on of hands for people uh, on people for ordination and by not dividing over arguments concerning the resurrection and not preaching eternal judgment it is god's will that you do these things and if you do so you will begin to move forward that's a pretty good paraphrase in other words that's where you started but it's not where you end up you continually evaluate that and you move on to deeper levels of love because that's the bottom line that he's going to talk about toward the end of the book of Hebrews. Third point, reframing is not only a part of the Bible, it's a part of wisdom as well. So I read also at the very beginning of the service, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The whole book of Proverbs is talking about how to cultivate wisdom. And this wisdom is an art. It's an art. It's not a science. It is an art. Let me show you what I mean here. So in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, you have this, okay? It's, it reads this. Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself, verse 4. Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes, verse 5. Saying the exact opposite, Okay? Okay, make up your mind, which is right. Is it number one, don't answer fools, or number two, answer fools? It depends. That's the point. Wisdom is saying you have to be flexible enough to know that at times you just keep your mouth shut because a fool is a fool is a fool, and you'll become a fool if you try to convince them. At other times, people are foolish. They're not fools, but they become foolish at times, and you answer them because you went through the same thing, you have a deeper insight about something. So you have to use wisdom to determine which of these verses you use in which context. Does that make sense? Okay. So at times you answer a fool, at times you don't answer a fool. It just kind of depends, and you have to use wisdom to know the difference. Now, do you realize we have these type of things in English all the time? Listen to a couple of them. Look before you leap. No, 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 no. He who hesitates is lost. 
direct opposites, okay? If at first you don't succeed, then try, try again. Don't beat your head against a stone wall. <laughs> exact opposites, right? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Ah, out of sight, out of mind. Exact opposites. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Don't cross the bridge until you come to it. We have all kinds of these type of sayings. So which is right? They're both right. You have to determine which one to use based upon the wisdom of the moment. So all I'm trying to say is at times we have to shift our framing. And that's a good example through this picture here. Okay. So there is a principle in photography called the rule of thirds. So there's three sections, one, two, three, horizontally, one, two, three, vertically. Professional photographers say, if you want to capture the beauty of a photograph, you always put your subject at the crossing point in one of these sections of thirds. So if you took that lady and her dog and you placed her right in the middle, it would be a photograph that's okay. But because the photographer reframed it over to the rule of thirds, that point, so you have four points there where her back is, above it, to the right, to the right. If you put that subject at any one of those four spots, the photograph will come alive. Something for you to consider when you take a photograph. Use the rule of thirds. So now, having said that, a photographer might take a picture of this woman and her dog at the Grand Canyon using all four points, right? Because that's the way life is. You see life from different perspectives. So what I want to do as we close our service this morning is for you to think about this. We're going to take the Lord's table, and you're going to go up. You're going to get a piece of bread, and you're going to get a cup, and we're going to uh, observe the Lord's table. But before you do, I want you to think about Jesus himself. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, he reframed the Passover. So in Luke chapter 22... This is an interesting passage, and then we'll invite you to come up if you want to participate in communion. We'll invite you to come up and take uh, the bread and the cup and hold it, and then we'll eat and drink together. So listen to this, Luke chapter 22, beginning of verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs. That's why we call it the upper room. All furnished, make preparations there. So they left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared this ancient ritual, the Passover observance. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread and gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now here's where he reframes the Passover. Listen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. No, we're celebrating the Passover, the story of the Exodus from way, 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 way back. No, Jesus, no, he reframes it. No, this is the new covenant of my blood. He reframes this whole observance that the Jews have been observing for thousands of years. And he says, no, this cup is going to represent my life and my death. And drink in remembrance of me. You know what Jesus was saying through that reframing? He is the ultimate Passover lamb. All those Passover lambs from the Old Testament that symbolized the great deliverance of uh, Israel out of Egypt comes to its apex in the person of Jesus who is the Passover lamb.